Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Broadcasting from an undisclosed location, from a secret hunting spot known only to him, and the guy who told him about it, and possibly the guy who told the guy who told him. It's a show all about hunting in New Zealand and around the globe. This is The Hunting Show. Find The Hunting Show on Facebook and Twitter for up-to-date information on upcoming shows and topics. The hunting and outdoors is our common denominator. It's why we all tune in. Whether you're a pro hunter, an anti-hunter, a person that's interested in hunting, or someone that's been doing it a very long time as is an expert, the thing we have in common, all of us, is this great sport. And on that note, I started wondering, what do you consider it? Is it a sport? So I smashed away at my keyboard and found all sorts of answers. And this is what I love about the power of the internet and the knowledge that's at my fingertips. It's huge. And I wonder how much we use that. And so I, it led to stuff. It, it made me start thinking about other things. And what could I drag out of search engines such as Google or Yahoo And is there stuff in there that I've always assumed is right or words that I've used that I really don't know? So this show is all about that. It's not just going to be about hunting. I've got a couple of randoms in there as well. But basically, there's a whole lot of stuff I've Googled and I'm going to tell you the answer. The first thing I wanted to find out was the definition and the origin of the word hunt or hunting. Well... Like many words, the origins aren't profound. I thought I might find something interesting, and it came from something. I even found something about Germanic bell ringing. Um, Really couldn't make sense of that. But the definition of hunt is to chase and kill wild animals for food and pleasure. This is according to the WebsterDictionary.com. To search for something or someone very carefully and thoroughly. Okay, makes sense. And then the origin of the word hunt or hunting, it's Middle English and it comes from an Old English huntian, which is to seize. First known use before the 12th century. That's kind of the best I could do, to be fair, on that word. Um, There's lots of people with the last name hunt or first name hunter, some of them famous. But to be fair, that's what it is. So it comes from the 12th century. It's an old English word. Not very interesting, but it's, look, it's it's in the title of the show, so I had to find out where it came from. The next one comes from something that's sitting in front of me when I'm on air with you, and he's a little M&M guy. M&M is the little hard chocolate candy thing. 
And I've got a bit of a confession. Whenever I come through customs, for some reason, I feel the need to buy some sort of M&M product. I don't even always eat the M&Ms. And the dude that sits on my desk is a little M&M guy. He's the yellow M&M, the guy with the peanut in him, I think. <laughs> I don't know why I know that. And you push the button and he plays the drums. He's a... That's what he's doing. His arms are moving and he's playing the drums. Although this is pathetic. What this led me to is I never really knew what Eminem stood for. So I looked it up and I found this out and today I found out dot com. And what it is, 1941, Forrest Mars Sr. of the Mars Candy Company struck a deal with Bruce Murray son of famed Hershey president William Murray, to develop a hard-shelled candy with chocolate at the centre. Mars needed Hershey's chocolate because he anticipated there would be a chocolate shortage in the pending war, which, by the way, turned out to be true. As such a deal gave Murray a 20% stake in the newly developed M&M, his stake was later bought out by Mars Chocolate at the end of the war in 1948. The name thus stood... Eminem, Mars and Murray, the co-creators of the candy. There you go, Mars and Murray. I, if someone asked me, I wouldn't have got that. I would have said something like Melton Mouth or Names of People or... To be fair, I wouldn't have got it. I wouldn't have got that one. So there you go, Mars and Murray. Next time you look at a packet of M&Ms, think Mars and Murray. Think of Mars Bars and Bruce Murray. <laughs> That's how I'm going to remember it. Mars and Murray, stupid fact uh, for you, but interesting all the same so to get very much back on topic i wanted to bring up the queen's chain hands up out there in radio world who's used that term or at least heard that term my understanding of it was was it was a strip of land around waterways and the foreshore i suppose that gives me access me as a new zealander gives me access and i figured there would be exceptions to this but all the same I understood it to be something that, that is quite common and understood. First thing I landed on when I looked up the Queen's chain was terra.govt.nz. It's government website. You'd assume it's speaking with some sort of authority, and I'm going to I'm going to own that. If you want to email me, info at thehuntingshow.co.nz if I'm on the wrong website, but that's kind of the whole aim of the show. It starts with public and private rights. And I'm not going to read this whole part, but the, the the end of it basically says, the belief that the public have a legal right of access to the foreshore is actually a myth. There you go. Then it goes on to the Queen's Chain. Equally mythological is the so-called Queen's Chain. I did that in air brackets for you. Said to be a 20-meter, or chain, strip along the edge of waterways and coasts, and therefore above the watermark or the foreshore. It is believed to give universal right of public access. Okay, that sounds roughly what I thought it was. Where it comes from, Queen Victoria instructions or Queen Victoria's instructions to Governor William Hobson in 1840 certainly asked that places along the sea coast and streams be reserved for the recreation and amusement of the inhabitants. But neither statue nor common law consistently established this as a universal right so what we're saying is although this was asked for 
and probably where the word queen's chain comes from, it never got put into law. It goes on to say public access has always been partial. About 70% of the land in New Zealand's coast is public ownership. Where it has been legally secured or has been predominantly formed roads along the coastline, reservations of land of sale and other transfers of land as well as various forms of reserves such as roads and reserves. So there you go, about 70% of the coastline is public access. It doesn't really tell me much about the rivers side of things, but from what I read of that, if the river's on private land, it's privately owned to the watermark, unless there's a reserve along there. That's kind of how I read that. Great website to go to is whams.co.nz, and that's going to tell you public access up the wazoo. In fact, I use that quite a lot. And I was I was actually trawling through WAMS last night. WAM, sorry. Very, very useful website if you want to know where you can access or whether something's private or public or dock estate land. Definitely give it a go. In fact, I'm just making a note now. I'm going to put a link to the WAMS website in the comment section of this podcast just for you, just, for you, just so you can use that and find out uh, public versus private access. Because the Queen's chain sits firmly now in the bullshit category. (laughs) The next one is one that I've struggled to find a straight answer for. And it was, why is a round called a round? It's a bullet. And it's not really round. So I looked it up. And where I landed was actually answers on Yahoo in the end. And... The best answer, or the one that everyone's voted for, well, there's two that everyone has actually voted for, but the one that most people voted for was old musket bullets were completely round. So even though the bullet has become oblong and much faster by spiralling out of the barrel, the old term has stuck for generations. There you go. And then someone else writes, well, actually, the technical term is for the whole object. The bullet is the piece of metal that fires down the range. The the casting is the larger piece of metal that stays with the gun and the primer. There you go. And that in itself is round. So, and also says, also the box that the rounds go into is called a magazine, not a clip. So anyway, I then went on to find out about that. I don't know why that's on the end of that thread, but it made me think. You always hear about people calling them a clip and not a magazine. And I found this, magazine versus clip, and this is on gunsandammo.com. You know that boxy rectangular thingy that holds cartridges and slides into the bottom of your semi-auto or gun, maybe your pistol, is not a clip. No matter how often the term is used, it is wrong. A magazine holds shells under a spring of pressure in preparation for feeding the firearms chamber. Examples include a box, a tubular drum, rotary magazines. Some are often fixed to the firearms while others are removable. A cartridge or clip has no spring and does not feed the shells directly into the chamber. Rather, clips hold cartridges in the correct sequence for charging a specific firearm. There you go. Sniper clips allow rounds to be stripped 
into the magazine while others are fed along with the shells into the magazine. Well, the, that, that's it. So there's a difference between a magazine and a clip. One is under pressure and one is kind of something that holds it. There's a great picture here you can't see showing uh, all the bullets sitting off the end of a clip while in a magazine they're all covered. There you go. A magazine versus a clip. I did start to wonder at that point about are there other words we get wrong? I've always called the my can on the end of my gun a suppressor. But very, very often you hear the word silencer. I'd like to get a silencer for my gun. And I tend to, probably without knowing it, correct that and say it's a suppressor. Figured it doesn't silence my gun. In fact, um, it makes it quieter, but by no means when, when that sucker goes off would you consider it silent. So I stuck with gunsandammo.com. Great website, by the way. And I found an article on there, Suppressor versus Silencer. Here's a definition that tends to get people fired up. Many firearm experts believe that the term silencer has no correct usage. Rather, it is an inaccurate slang term for suppressor. Suppressors aren't silencers because they don't actually silence the firearm. Guns that fire silently only exist in Hollywood. Suppressors are merely moderating the escaping gases, greatly reducing but not eliminating the noise. In fact, that's kind of what I was thinking. The NRA, oh gosh, <laughs> oh, them bunch. The NRA firearms sourcebook makes the distinction clear, defining a suppressor as a device attached to the muzzle of a firearm to reduce the noise of discharge, sometimes incorrectly called a silencer. I believe that's the most accurate definition. However, there were things that get muddy. The Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms used the word silencer in its official paperwork. So I suppose either term is accurate. Still, I advise sticking with suppressor and avoiding the word silencer. That's what the article says. That wasn't me talking there. There you go. I tend to agree with that, actually, that it is a suppressor, not a silencer. That's my opinion because it doesn't silence my gun. I've always heard lots of theories about what deer see. Can they see you if you're wearing colour? Do they see in colour? So I googled it. And the most up-to-date article I could find comes from July 28th, 2014. Look, guys, if you find something later, please send me a link. Um, this one comes from OutdoorLife.com, and it's clearly American. I'm going to read you, well, I'm going to paraphrase what it says to be fair. But one thing they can all agree on is that what deer see is different from ours. And that how do you, how do you even do that? How do you know what a deer is seeing when you can't look through their eyes? And from what I can see, Obviously, they, they know that certain types of eyes see certain things, and they've done experiments with deer and putting color in front of them. Humans have trichromatic color vision, which means our eyes see three types of photopigments. The photopigments enable us to see short, moderate, and long wavelengths of light, corresponding into blue, green, and red colors. They know that deer only have two photopigment types, giving them Ditch, hang on, 
dichromatic vision. Scientists believe that deer can primarily see short wavelengths, blue and blue light, and moderate wavelengths, light, they can probably perceive as something between red and green. They go on to say, unlike in humans, the cones in a deer's eye are distributed across the back of the eye on the horizontal plane. The lens in the deer's eye therefore cannot adjust to objects of varying distances. These factors give deer less visual clarity than humans. An object that a deer is looking at on the straight is equally as focused as something out to the side. So do not assume because the deer isn't looking at you, he can't see you. That's, that's an interesting one. More than anything else, a deer's eyes are designed to detect movement, said the University of Georgia's Dr. Carl Miller, whose students conducted the study that this whole thing is about. So rather than read you the whole study, I'm going to read the bit that I found interesting. Cohen found that deer see blue colours the best and red colours the worst. Deer can also see greens, yellows and UV light, but they can't define colour shades to the extent that humans can. What this means as a hunter, you should avoid wearing anything blue. You should also avoid wearing camouflage with a lot of white, because white reflects all colours, including blue. And because deer can't perceive colour shades very well, a hunter wearing camouflage containing stable shades of green or brown just looks one big blot, like one big blob of stuff to a deer. Instead, wear camouflage that breaks up your outline and move as little as possible to avoid being busted. That's a very, very interesting article that comes from OutdoorLife.com. Look, (laughs) I have seen other articles that that kind of contradict this. I I genuinely have. I just found that one very interesting. OutdoorLife.com and this 2014 study Check it out for yourself, have a read, and let me know what you think. Because particularly that deer see colours of blue best and red colours worst. They can also see greens and yellows and UV light. Isn't it interesting that we you know, we use sports wash to avoid UV light in our clothing, and that's the exact reason why, and the study kind of confirms that is the case. Ah... Uh, I know that's going to be trouble. And in the white thing, I think that's that's very relevant. Don't wear white. Um, it doesn't go as far as talking about blaze. This next one is something that I've never done. And that was how to call in a pig. Is there anyone out there that's done that, that listens to the show? Please call me and verify this. And I know that it works. Um... I've had many people, when I say I know, I've had many people that do this quite regularly and they're able to call in wild pigs and I would like to give this a go myself actually. I'm starting to get curious. So I I landed on wikihow.com and this is certainly not New Zealand but I'm sure that it kind of must work for everybody and it, it does give some quite detailed answers and it talks here about gravitating towards distress calls typically speaking most wild hogs respond to the sound of distressed swine more than any other call the sound of distressed piglets are especially useful but even the sound of distressed adult pigs might be useful in some instances so there you go and it goes on how you actually do that um 
and it talks about being very wary of mouth-blowing callers. While some hunters have success calling hogs with traditional mouth-blowing caller, the odds are against the novice hunter who tries to use them. Most mouth-blowing callers are packaged as hog grunts, and these grunts more closely resemble those of white-tailed bucks rather than wild hogs or other swine. As such, the standard mouth-blowing caller doesn't often attract the attention of hogs and drive, in fact, it drives the hogs, or as we call them, pigs, away. It says opt for electric callers. Portable electric callers are practical and more accurate. They're easier to handle, and wild pigs generally respond to them more consistently than they respond to mouth-blowing callers. Ooh, that's a big call. That's a big call. Um... Grunt calls are fairly common but aren't very effective. There you go. So I've learnt more in that sentence about calling in pigs than I have. And look, it could be bollocks. <laughs> WikiHow could be telling me crap. And I would definitely, definitely like your opinion because it's something I don't know anything about. And isn't that the magic of the old interweb? The next thing I was curious about is you've often done that thing where you've you've shot a deer or you've missed that that deer in the hills and you've thought well I've blown it this whole area is stuffed they've all disappeared does that do they I mean do they really care do they just disappear and you can't see them or do they really scarper I landed on outdoorhub.com and again I'm only reading you their opinion before I start getting hate mail um, but it's an opinion and the first answer is deer flee an area once shooting starts, the older deer are better at hiding. That's the sort of the topic for the conversation. It goes on to say this is only partially true. Recent studies by researchers at Auburn University and Pennsylvania State University have found that deer do react to the hunting. Yet animals never pack up their things and move. Instead, scientists found the animal, animals would begin to sneak out of hiding places in the day and visit food plots at night. They never, however, fully leave range. They just become more sneaky. That's right. Deer find vantage points, or what I would call vantage points, places where the prevailing wood comes from the west or wherever, and nothing is going to sneak up to them from that direction. They find a steep slope where they can get away quickly. And they definitely, at that point, are in a space where they can hear and see hunters struggling towards them. That's according to this article. Check it out on OutdoorHub.com. I found that very, very interesting. I was told recently that, in fact, I was with quite an experienced hunter. And we'd been walking a wee while. And I needed to go to the bathroom. And because I was in nature, well, the whole hills are my toilet. It was fantastic. Um... And he got a bit shitty with me, and he said, well, actually, you're putting out a lot of scent. And I'm thinking, I probably am, actually. So this is, and I probably, and he reckoned it ruined the whole area. And I found this, actually, I found the answer to this on Hot, on Outdoor Hub as well. And it says here, if deer can pick up on human scent, it seems to follow that urinating next to where you're hunting is a bad idea. Well, it appears that is just a myth. Many biologists believe that human urine will elicit little or elicit 
little or no response from deer because most deer do not associate it with a predator. In fact, urine from other animals such as livestock has been known to attract deer and it may even work out in your favour. It's more than likely that the only way that peeing near where you're hunting will hurt your chances is if the deer hear you doing it. And there's actually a video here that kind of proves it. Someone apparently peed there and then the deer are there. I'm not even going to watch that video. <laughs> um, but that's interesting. There you go. So going for a pee while you're hunting by the sounds isn't going to do diddly squat. I don't know whether I should test that actually. Have you had any experience with that? You've taken a pee and it hasn't changed anything or has it done what it says on here and it actually has helped your chances because they've come into the smell. This is one I've never heard before, and it's come up on lots of websites as I've been trawling around, and that is rubber boots prevent scent detection. And I, I actually hadn't heard that. That was something that I'd been oblivious to, but I'd seen it quite a few times around the web. And it says here, and this is on wideopenspaces.com, this myth is probably the most common of myths in hunting. I'd never heard it. And you guys are probably rolling your eyes and face palming right now. But anyway, rubber boots are a popular item for deer hunters since most believe that rubber keeps deer from smelling your footprints. The truth is the deer is far more likely to smell your head, your hands, or any other part of your body, not your footprints. Um, I might have debunked something for you then. <laughs> I don't know. I really don't know because I hadn't heard that. There you go. Um, something I hadn't heard and yet it's all over the web as a myth that's worth debunking so I just have and finally I wanted to know whether wild meat was really better for me than farmed meat I'd kind of heard that but again I couldn't tell whether that was true I did do a little bit of research online and I know this doesn't mean that everything I've found is fact Right, I just hit the keyboards and wanted to give you an example of the things I found. And I found on livingstrong.com, which to me looked like a kind of, I don't know, hippie type, live life better type website. Wild game meats have health benefits when compared to meat from domesticated or farm-raised animals. By the way, it's not a go at farm-raised animals there. Examples of wild game include venison, bison, rabbit and elk. The fact that wild game animals eat their natural diet and are very active contributes to the lower fat content of the meat. Additionally, eating greens in the wild contributes to a lower content of omega-6 fatty acids and a higher content of anti-inflammatory omega-3 fatty acids. Furthermore, wild game meat is a good source of protein and minerals such as iron and zinc. There you go. That's it for me for the hunting show for another week. And look, if you weren't into it, we'll be back to our normal interview format once again next week. Thank you very much to NZ Outdoor and Hunting Magazine or NZ Outdoor Hunting Magazine and for their great prizes and their great support. If you want to win that great subscription, all you've got to do is be active with us. Like us on Facebook twitter and instagram i'm not good with twitter at the moment sorry sorry if you have found me on twitter um, but do find our instagram profile we've only just started it 
um, need to work on that a little bit more, but there are some great photos on there. Again, thank you for tuning in. Be careful out there, guys, and good hunting. Podcasting from an undisclosed location, from a secret hunting spot known only to him and the guy who told him about it, and possibly the guy who told the guy who told him. It's a show all about hunting in New Zealand and around the globe. This is The Hunting Show. Find The Hunting Show on Facebook and Twitter for up-to-date information on upcoming shows and topics. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC. 